Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Peter Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the Baron of Bourbon. That's right. I've got a very special guest on today, and I hope you are all... Being healthy and um, you know taking care of each other, uh, getting some sunshine, need some vitamin D, get out of the house every now and then. But of course, social distancing. We're almost through this. Stick, uh, stay with us, um, and be sure to buy some of this uh, this next whiskey I'm going to talk about. In fact, they've got so much whiskey, uh, you could have a whiskey for almost each day. I've got Brent Elliott, the master distiller for Four Roses Distillery uh, out of uh, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. He's on the line. We're going to talk about all that makes Four Roses so lovely and so pretty. Uh, Brent Elliott, welcome to Happy Hour. Oh, hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, so I've never been to Kentucky. Um, that's the bluegrass state, right? That's exactly right. And unfortunately, we uh, they postponed the Kentucky Derby, which uh, when I worked in television, we always covered the Kentucky Derby. That was back in the 90s. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, you are a, um, what, do they, what do they call them, Kentuckyite, Kentuckian, Kentuckian? Kentuckian. Kentuckian. So yeah. uh, you grew up and you went to school at the University of Kentucky. That's right. Yeah, I, I grew up in the western part of the state in Owensboro and then went to school in Lexington and then uh, eventually made my way back to uh, to work for Four Roses about 15 years ago. And so you uh, were a chemistry major in college, and I think that means a lot of things to some people, <laughs> but you actually studied <laughs> chemistry, right? That's right. Uh-huh. Fantastic. Now, um, I'm curious, how does chemistry translate to this whole idea of fermentation science? Well, if you look at it, then you've got a lot of biology, you've got engineering, you've got, there, there's so much that goes into making whiskey. But if you break it down far enough, I mean, everything at that level is chemistry, whether it's the fermentation, the, uh, the distillation, you know, even some of the processing, it all comes down to really what is in the whiskey and on a really fundamental level, it's all chemical. Okay. Um, now, let's talk about Four Roses. Um, now, let's see. Who was the first distillery in Kentucky? Was that uh, Evan Williams, or was that uh, um, Jim Beam, or was that uh, Elijah Craig? Uh, you know, it's the history is kind of nebulous and hard to pinpoint exactly like where it began or who the first person produced whiskey was and Believe me, a lot of people spend a lot of time scouring through archives and yeah. histories to try to figure that out. So it's really hard to say. Yeah, some of those names you've thrown out there, some of those guys are credited with you know being some of the first. You know who the actual first was. It's hard to say. All right, now let's talk about Four Roses. Um, who started? Who's the founder of Four Roses Distillery? Uh, our founder is uh, Paul Jones Jr., and he actually began making whiskey down in Atlanta, Georgia back in the 1880s but uh, he had to pack up and he moved everything up to kentucky and trademarked the name in 1888 in kentucky and he continued selling and making bourbon up to and actually through prohibition Uh, fortunately for us his company was one of six that had a license to sell 
medicinal whiskey during Prohibition. So <laughs> even when no one else could get whiskey or any spirits or beer, alcohol legally, there was that loophole for if you needed it for a particular illness, and I couldn't tell you exactly what those illnesses were, how legitimate <laughs> that is, but you could get them through your uh, through your physician. You could get one pint of whiskey every 10 days. Wow, or well, fatigue or headaches or whatever. It might I like be. it. Yeah, maybe going through withdrawals even, huh? <laughs> That's so fun. My parents are doctors. My sister's a doctor, and um, you know, I think chemistry has changed in some of the pharmaceuticals these days. But there's just something that is so basic for a just a nice dram to warm the spirit and to fortify oneself in the in the cold or the calming of the spirit, if you will. Um, it's been very important and part of our history, of course. Uh, when you think of Four Roses, um, I think of that really cool uh, round. It's not it's not a regular bottle. It's more of a flat. They got they got several different bottles. I've had the small batch before. Um, let, let's talk about how many. Um, what makes Four Roses so special? You have uh, uh, several different mash bills, right? Different grains you use in the fermentation, meaning fifty one percent corn is a minimum. Yeah, exactly. We have um, we actually produce ten different bourbon recipes, and by that, it, what it means we have two mash bills that you're alluding to, and then we have five different yeast strains that we use to ferment those mashes. So the combination of two mash bills, five yeast strains, we arrive at ten distinctly different bourbons, and each one of those is mashed, fermented, distilled, and aged independently, and then at the end of maturation, whenever that particular batch or barrel is ready to be aged based on its flavor profile and its maturation. We pull those particular recipes, mingle them together in different proportions, one for consistency and the other is to create different products. So whether you're drinking the Four Roses bourbon, which uses up to all 10 recipes or the small batches that we'll talk about in depth later, the, you know, the regular small batches, four recipes, the small batch select is six recipes, single barrel is one recipe. So all those are different, not just because of the ages and the, the proofs, but because of the different recipes that are used. Now, is that all in different percentages, or is it like four mash bills are all 25% of the uh, the final? We um, we tweak those percentages for um, consistency. Because with bourbon whiskey, there's certain guidelines, and it's so regulated. We have to follow all these different guidelines to be able to call it straight bourbon whiskey. And... One of those guidelines, which is probably one of the most important ones, is we can't adulterate it in any way. We can't add colors, flavors, anything to tweak that flavor profile, which basically means it's totally a natural product. We're at the mercy of so many variables, the weather, the grains, the wood. That there's so much that goes into the final profile of any particular barrel that's aged. That, and that's great. I think that's part of what makes it so – it brings art into it. But um, that also creates a challenge because we want our products to be consistent for our consumers. Sure. So if you're used to, you know, like the small batch, if you're used to that flavor profile, you go back and buy it again because you like the flavor up. So we want to be consistent. Uh, it's curious. Um, those, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was saying with those recipes or whether like the small batch, the four recipes, we can always tweak that and use you know, different batches or slightly different ages to all within the same recipes, but to keep that flavor profile. 
When I think of fermentation, when I think uh, obviously there a uh, temperature is a big part of fermentation, right? Of course, we think about lager beers or ales, top fermenting versus bottom fermenting. Fermentation takes a while. We're talking about uh, uh, turning starches in, into sh- uh, fermentable sugars. Uh, do you? And throughout the year, is Kentucky what's what's the variable? What's the diurnal? Is uh, do you have cold cold winters and hot hot summers? I, I imagine you do. We do, yes, and. Uh... You know, from the the front end, the actual fermentation distillation, that doesn't really affect it much. Um, we have, you know, it's all done indoors, so the the temperature swings don't affect that side of it. Sure. But that's very, very important for the aging process. As that's the estimation is, you know, two thirds or more of the flavor and all the color. That all comes from what happens inside those barrels. So when you have a very hot day like you have in, say, July or August, you're getting a lot of expansion that the uh, the headspace in that barrel with all the, the vapors and the air, that expands and pushes down the liquid and that forces it into the wood. Ah. And then the opposite happens in the winter. It's, it's almost like it's that liquid's being pushed in and out. It's almost like it's breathing into and out of the wood as the seasons change. So the climate here is very important and integral to to what makes Kentucky so good for making bourbon. I liked it. Now, when we think about your expressions of bourbon, um, are these different, do you use different coopers? You must have one, do you have a, a Four Roses cooper, or do you buy a variety of woods to make sure that all your baskets are not in one, or all your eggs are not in one basket, so to speak? You know, actually, all of our eggs are in one basket. We use the <laughs> same cooper. It's independent stave. We've been using them for years, and... Their quality is fantastic. Their consistency is great. So we just have a great relationship with them. And so, well, let's talk just, about the initial bourbon. I know you said it's a mix of all four mash bills, or oh, wait, two, all four yeasts, or all ten different yeah, recipes. T- ten different recipes. Yeah, the two mash bills, five yeast strains. Okay. Now, and that's the that's the, we'll call the four roses, just the bourbon, straight bourbon whiskey, right? Uh huh. Now, what are your other expressions? You have a um, barrel select or a small batch select? Yeah, we have the uh, so the standard products: so the Four Roses Bourbon, then the Four Roses Small Batch, mm-hmm. then the new product, relatively new product, the Four Roses Small Batch Select. Then we have our standard single barrel, and then we also have a uh, a private barrel program, and that's similar to the single barrel concept because. Anything from any given bottle came from one barrel. But in that program, the um, the liquid is non-chill filtered. It's barrel strength, which means when we dump that barrel, it is what it is, and we handwrite the, the proof on the bottle. And that can be any one of our 10 recipes, hmm. whereas our standard 100-proof single barrel is always one of our recipes. And then we also have a uh, small batch limited edition that we release every September, and that's typically 12 to 13, 14,000 bottles, and that is some of our older whiskey, some of the special batches that we set aside just for this release, and it's different every year. It, the one consistent thing is it's always different, <laughs> and it's always older. Interesting. And it's filtered and barrel strength, too. So does... Is there a does, does the variation of or is there a variation in the actual um, barrel proof? Do are some barrels a little higher than others? Does, does that happen or? Yeah, actually it does. Um, one of the things we do that's pretty that's very unique is we have single story warehouses, 
And that again goes back to how a or how heat or temperature affects the aging. Um, back in the '60s, Four Roses decided that they were tired of rotating barrels for consistency mm-hmm. from the top to the bottom and, and so on. So they started building single-story warehouses. So our our warehouses are only six barrels high, and with that, we don't see the temperature variation from the bottom to the top that you do in some of the bigger warehouses. So, uh, but even in our warehouses. They're very consistent in flavor, color, and in the maturation. But if you go out far enough, even with the minor temperature variations we see from the bottom to the top, after about 9, 10, 15 years, you will see a difference from the bottom tier to the top tier in somewhat in characteristics and a lot in the proof. We see that at the top tiers, where it's a little bit warmer, we tend to lose more water out of the barrel, and so the proof goes up. Really? Whereas on the, yeah, we we see quite a bit of gain when, once we get old enough with barrels, and we see the loss on the lower tiers. Interesting. That's, that's loss and proof. You would think that would be the opposite because, of course, alcohol is a, lo- a lower evaporation temperature than um, water. I would think that would uh-huh. be the opposite. You know, I think probably you have more of the alcohol that's volatilizing in the higher tiers, but, and I think that's increasing the pressure, the sort of theory is that it's all about the size of the molecule. The Since water's smaller, uh, all of that escapes. Okay. Very good. Well, there we go. I have my chemistry lesson. Hey, folks, you can, <laughs> you can apply for a credit here on Happy Hour Radio. Speaking with Brent Elliott, who is the master distiller of Four Roses, he is a uh, University of Kentucky graduate, majored in chemistry, and your first job was uh, assistant manager in quality control. Quickly, what does quality control mean? Um, for us, I think most importantly, it means something that doesn't in other industries, and it, it means that you get to taste whiskey. <laughs> it means that <laughs> part of uh, there, you have all aspects. You know, some that aren't exciting, like when you're talking about. Uh, specifications, compliance, and, and the things that don't shine quite as much, those those are still part of it. That's part of maintaining a quality product. But fortunately, when you're talking about whiskey, that includes the flavor profile. So it does involve a lot of smelling, tasting, selecting barrels, um, selecting batches, that sort of thing. All right, cool. Well, we're going to take all that knowledge and try some of these small batch select bourbons we've got. Speaking with Brent Elliott on with Four Roses Master Distiller here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m., Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, hope you're cozy inside and got something tasty in that glass. Time for round two. We're spending our uh, afternoon, our evening with Brent Elliott, the master distiller for Four Roses Distillery in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Uh, He's calling me from Frankfurt. And um, tell me, uh, Brent, uh, how much whiskey does Four Roses Roses produce in a day or a month or a year? Um, That's an interesting question because we just finished an expansion last year that doubles our production capacity. Wow. And yeah, it was a big job. Took three, almost almost four years to complete. And the reason we had to do that was just because of the demand in the U.S. The demand's grown so much that we couldn't keep up. And even before we expanded, we were able to produce 
4 million proof gallons of spirit off our still every year. Okay. So wow. now we, yeah, so we've doubled that. Now we're not making 8 million gallons a year just yet because we know that five years from now, six years from now, we're not going to double our sales overnight. So we're kind of stepping that up, but um, it's a good opportunity for us to, to get four roses into the hands of more people and uh, just to meet that grown demand. Very cool. Now, tell me about some of the grains. Are you are you selecting grains from uh, across the country, or do you have a, a Kentucky farmer, or are you uh, Iowa corn, or what? What's the the grain heritage or pedigree? Uh, our corn, which is by definition the dominant grain in our our mash bills, that all comes from the same group of farmers that have been growing corn for us for over fifty years, and it's they're all up in Indiana. And um, the reason we have such a tight group we work with up there is um everything we do is all the corn is non-gmo and that's important now in the u.s it it wasn't so important you know 15 20 years ago but 15 20 years ago our biggest markets were europe and japan and they've been more concerned with genetically modified grains um, longer than we have so to meet that requirement over there we've been using these uh, these Specific farmers up in Indiana. Now, our rye that comes occasionally from Canada. Most of the time, we get that from from Europe. Really? Like, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, we follow the. Yeah, they they grow some really good rye, especially uh, you know, some of the yeah Poland, you know, Germany, German. Yeah, yeah. That's the quality of rye is just phenomenal. So that's uh, that's typically our source for rye, and then our barley comes from sort of upper Midwest, um, and that's not a big portion of our mash bill. That We use 5% barley in both of our mash bills, and that's really just a functional grain. We use that for the enzymes, for sure. the conversion. Right. Makes sense. Uh, and finally, um, tell me about the water. I know that Kentucky has a high limestone content of water. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, that's why we're famous for more caves. <laughs> <laughs> the limestone that that dissolves and you get these nice big caverns famous for caves i want to see that cave. on a license plate kentucky <laughs> famous for caves <laughs> mammoth cave and, and many others but, all right yeah part of that is yeah we've got a lot of limestone and that helps uh with all the groundwater that all trickles through we pick up some of the limestone which is basically a vitamin for for the yeast the yeast loves that right and then uh it, it also filters out um metals and impurities so we have very clean very hard water which is great for making whiskey excellent well i'm enjoying a, i just poured myself a, a bit as a small weed dram of the small batch chill filtered 90 proof tell me about this particular expression okay that was uh we released that in 2006 and that was really the first time that we went to those 10 recipes so that's the small batch, the and, original small batch yeah the original small batch damn it's good and yeah it's good <laughs> that's what we do for that one is uh we utilize both mash bills right down the middle. It's 50-50. And then we use our K yeast strain, which produces nice spice, and our O yeast strain, which through fermentation creates a lot of rich, deep, fruity flavors. So when you put those together, you get a nice balance. You get the fruit. You get the spice. It's 90 proof. It's a combination of six- and seven-year-old barrels, so it's got a lot of nice age on it. You get a lot of depth, a lot of rich, um, nice mouthfeel, nice finish. 
I'm digging it. It's uh, it's definitely smooth, but it also has uh, a nice, um, what also a very friendly personality. It's just got uh, edges of, of spice uh, with some of that rye and some of the yeast notes there. Um, it's it's very it's a little bit of cream on the finish, which I really dig. Now um, I'm curious. Do you ferment everything at the same temperature so the K yeast and the O yeast are doing the same thing time after time? Or do they do they act differently when you have K yeast a little hotter or O yeast a little cooler? They they would. Um, we are consistent, though, on our set temperature. So our fermentation temperature, we always start out at 66, 67 degrees Fahrenheit. But we do see that certain yeast strains are a little more active, a little more aggressive, and they take off sooner. Some are a little bit slower. And usually the ones that are tend to be a little slower are the ones that have more of the unique S3-type flavors like the, the O or our Q, which is floral, or the F, which creates kind of minty herbal flavors. Hmm. Uh, those tend to just take a little bit longer just to kick off. But we treat them all the same. We, put, we set them all at the same temperature, and they all ferment. They all hit their end point. At about the same time, you know, it's fermenter, okay. fermenter, but sure, interesting. We hit, we hit the end point. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, is the grist? Is that a specific size, or do you vary grists? And that's the sort of the size of the mashed grain of the ground up corn and grains, right? Yeah the uh, the corn is always a consistent. It's run through one hammer mill with a certain size screen. It's always consistent, and the rye and the barley they run through a separate screen, so those are consistent. So we never deviate from what those those specifications are okay and as master distiller um have you come up with some ideas with your 15-year tenure there you must have some license to to practice uh uh, some wizardry out there right you get to do some fun things we uh yeah we do a lot of fun things um what we've really been fortunate about is the fact that we have the 10 recipes because with that, we kind of have an unlimited number of possibilities of different combinations, both of the recipes and the ages to create some to create new products, um, which has been nice because well, I became master distiller in 2015, and I get that question a lot, like, what are you going to do? What, how are you going right. to make your mark? And fortunately or unfortunately, everything we've been doing, probably since before that, since probably 2012, 2013, is just producing to catch up the demand. Sure. We haven't had a lot of room to to try any kinds of new mash bills or yeast strains or tweaking into the production parameters just to, to play around or innovate because we can't even meet the demand with what we're doing currently. But that's where I'm saying it's fortunate we have the 10 recipes because what we do already does give us the, the ability to offer consumers something different and exciting. And so I think that's probably the most fun and probably the biggest unique contribution I've made since since becoming Master Siller is creating the flavor profile for the small batch select. Fantastic. So that's what I have next. That's a perfect segue. Tell me about the small batch select. Now, this has non-chill filtered, 104 proof, and a mingling of six- and seven-year old wit bourbon. Yes, and it's going right back to the uh, small batch concept which is taking the different recipes, making something totally different by different combinations. Uh, but with this one, you know, this is the first permanent release. This came out last year in limited markets. Um, this is the first release since 2006. 
so you can see we don't just throw things out and see what sticks. We waited. <laughs> we wanted to do this one right. And so with this one, we looked at the modern consumer because the consumer of today is light years ahead of what the consumer was 10, even maybe five years ago. And what a lot of consumers are looking for now, they're, um, they're very interested in non-chill filtered bourbons, higher proof bourbons, um, you know, anything that adds value, uniqueness. And so with this one, we decided to do just that non-chill filtered. We raised the proof up to 104. Then we, um, that's where I went in and had, you know, unlimited, I guess, unlimited variety of, of options for the flavor profile that we could go with. And after many test blends and and tweaking back and forth, um, ultimately I ended up with six recipes, and that uses both mash bills, and it has the V yeast, which is it creates delicate fruity flavors, the K yeast, which is the spicy yeast, the same one that's used in small batch, and then I think most interestingly it utilizes the F yeast between 20 and 30 percent, so it's it's quite a big percentage of the overall um, formula. And that one is very unique because it creates the herbal, minty, um, more unique flavors. And I think especially when you take that F yeast strain and mix it with the V, it creates something that's more than the sum of the parts. You you get a, a totally unique flavor profile when you take those two yeast strains and put them together. So with this, I think we really achieve something that is both interesting to, to the modern consumer and is just good just different unique and just a very solid and uh it is really bourbon. tasty I'm, I'm really surprised how smooth these are at, at the elevated proof 1904 um obviously the the small batch select has a little more personality with a little more spice a little more zing to it um super delicious what's the website people can go to, to find more about uh, four roses it's uh www.fourrosesbourbon.com. Wow. Hey, Brent Elliott, what a treat, man. Congratulations on your success, and keep up the great work with Four Roses Distillery. Appreciate your time here on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you, Chris. All right. Hey, folks, stick around. I'm going to take a little swig. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby, the Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, hope you're having a great Saturday night. Uh, welcome back. It's time for round three, and I actually have full, uh, two bottles of rose and one glass in front of me because, believe it or not, um, it's been sunny outside, and this is the time to start thinking about rosé. Of course, I love rosé all throughout the year. Maybe not so much in December, January, but it goes great with Thanksgiving, and then it starts out with Valentine's Day. It's pink, so February to November is really my rosé dates. When it's December and January, I really like big, buttery, oaky Chardonnays, whether that's Merceau or something from California. But it is pink time. Uh, <laughs> We should have a COVID rosé, but we don't need it because we want to get rid of that thing. On the phone, I've got Michelle Wallach, who is the director uh, for Minuti, which is um, a Provencal rosé house. And we're going to chat about two fabulous selections today because I dig a Provencal rosé. When I made my wine, coral ro- uh, pink coral rosé, um, I uh, modeled it after the best of Provence. So, Michelle Wallach, hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. My pleasure. Let's talk about uh, you. You are the director for um, a, a, ch- a domain or is it a chateau? This domain, isn't it? It is actually considered a chateau. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I started working for them about two years ago. I'm the second non-family member to work for Chateau Minuti. So Sounds like someone a, got married. Someone must have gotten, well, that would be family then, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, when was Chateau Minuti founded in Provence, and which particular um, hamlet or commune is it in, located in? Sure. It's in uh, Gasson, and it was actually founded in 1936, so about pretty old well wow, that uh, that was generation a generation family owned business 1936 that was kind of a tough year to be starting a, <laughs> a chateau in france <laughs> of course it took them a while to get down to the south so they probably didn't uh, change the lifestyle too much if can you imagine being stationed down there it and you're just, a yeah. well um uh, it was founded by is, is minuti the last name of the the family no, it's actually the name of um, just where the chateau is. It really, uh, it doesn't really have too much to do with any of the family members. It's uh, luckily for us, it's an easy name to say, uh, but it, it was purchased by the great grandparents of the current owners now, and they've managed to keep that business in the family, which, you know, as you know, Rosé, a lot of, a lot of companies have come in and, and purchased especially Cote de Brabant, so yep. it's nice to be family-owned. It's exploded, and it's great to see a part of the family. everybody. It's great to see everybody, you know, the public start, you know, in the last two years really jumped on rosé, which is, or three years, I should say. Um, it's been a hit. It's delicious, and of course, it's it's they gravitated toward Provence because it's dry. I know here in Washington State, we've got a thousand wineries. A lot of people were bleeding off their rosé or their Syrah, I mean, or in the cab, and, and having a little residual sugar, they used to throw that away. And then they bottled it for ten bucks and and got people to buy it because it was cheap and it was kind of okay. It was a little sweet, didn't have complexity, and they had to add acid. Um, but once people got tired of that, they actually looked up the next rosé. And Provence has always been the leader in the world of rosé. Uh, let's talk about the grapes that are allowed in uh, rosé uh, Provence rosé. Cabernet Sauvignon, yeah, sure. Syrah. So the, the lead, so Grenache being the lead. Yep. Uh, Tiburon, a local Provencal style grape. Uh, that adds some structure and some power to uh, to the blending process. Uh, since so, and um, I think I I think I hit them all right. Morved and Cab. Yeah, that's it. Syrah. Perfect. Morved. Yep. Yep. Morved. Uh, we ha- I've had the pleasure of working with the um, those are the B C I C V P or something the the Provence the Costa Provence uh, Rosé Association. They were up here two years ago, and we did a. Uh, a presentation on rosé and uh, what I like about Minuti is that I know you sent me four bottles we're going to taste two today and two next week uh, different bottle sizes you've actually have the skittle then you've got the what I'll call is the uh, Escalon or the Chateau Angel or the, the high-end bottle which came out and then we've got the, the the tall Italian style long neck and you have another Rhone style wine uh, bottle here so let's talk about M Minuti uh, 2019 I want to say that all the vintages down there are relatively the same unless you get a big, huge rainstorm late. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. Very, very similar conditions year to year. Which I like, which because I know that's going to be sunny and warm. <laughs> Great place to visit. And I was down there a couple <laughs> years ago. So I've just poured a, a little glass of the M Minuti 2019. This is also uh, the one in the Skittle bottle, which uh, looks like the, I don't know, to, to be... Uh, to be a, a male here, I'm going to say it, it's got the female shape. Is that okay? 
<laughs> I don't know how do you call it. I was trying to say that. It's okay. All right, good. <laughs> it, is a bit, um, it is a bit feminine. It's actually a unique proprietary bottle that the mother of the two brothers that run Minuti, Francois and John Etienne, their mom, uh, Monique, created this bottle in the 1960s. So it's this unique shape, and throughout the last couple decades, you know, some other folks in the region have copied the bottle, uh, similar style, and what? now I say she started the Skittle to have it. She she created it. She did. Oh she my started. goodness! The M bottle that you're drinking. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. And actually, it's funny because in the 60s, like a lot of wineries, the quality of the grapes. The quality of the winemaking wasn't, you know, up to snuff at least what it is today in the last 20 years. So they were using grapes like Uni Blanc and Carignan, um, grapes that are just not as quality as Grenache for rosé production. Right. And so it was a little bit of a density play. So the longer shaped bottle, the wine was darker. Um, and over the course of time in the 90s, the two brothers ripped out the Uni Blanc and Carignan and replanted to Grenache. Um, but back then, she was ahead of her time and created this bottle so that the color would look lighter. Wow. Oh, Very how smart. about that? This is cool. I love that yeah, when I learn something. I, I should give that up. <laughs> it's all right. I poured some of the M Minuti um, in my glass. It's, it's quite expressive. I get hints of uh, ruby red grapefruit, mm-hmm. um, flowers, uh, a little bit of that white pepper note, a hint of spice or, or bay. Um, and, and of course, it is the light salmon pink, which, of course, we know it's salmon here in the Pacific Northwest. And I think this was always the color. If you knew the color was that way, it was going to be typically dry. Of course, white zin kind of was mm-hmm. the other opposite. People thought it was sweet. Uh, of course, when we had rosé a long time, we figured that, hey, if it's lighter color, it's going to be dry. Um, and this is really delicious. What I love about rosé, it is is mildly complex. It has um, moderate plus acidity. It's uh, There's no oak. Um, there's very typically little lees contact, but it does add a little bit of creaminess. These are always fresh, fragrant, and um, really friendly for a whole sorts of foods. You think about the Provence, we got garlic aioli, we got French fries, we have uh, uh, salad niçoise, um, of course, olives and the garrigue all down there. So it all works. This is a fantastic wine. I'm thinking this is going to be $17.99. What's the M Minuti? Yep, that's close. Is we're it? In that, we're in that region, and I, I like that you said pale pink salmon color, too. That's exactly the color that we want to get to. We want that beautiful uh, that beautiful color, but you nailed the tasting notes. I'd also say that I get a, a little, a little um, you know, candied orange also on the palate. Absolutely. Um, it, 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 actually, it lingers a little longer, too, when you, I was just sipping on the front, the attack. Mm-hmm. Um, it's smooth, it's delicious, and it always has that little bit of, that little hint of tannin, which helps dries the palate, makes you want to take another sip. Perfect. What's exactly. The, That's what we want. Yeah. We keep the alcohol pretty low on that, too. Uh, that's important because the bottle goes down pretty quick. Next thing you know. All right, next wine up is called the Rosé d'Or. Uh, what's the idea of this wine? Is this really a golden rosé? Sure, it is. I mean, you can see hopefully by the color, the the, the color pops a little bit. It's a little lighter. Um, rose, it's, it's pronounced Rosé d'Or, and um, this is made 100% on the estate. Mm. So this, I would say, Rosé d'Or is our flagship. And when you try the wine, it's 80% Grenache, 20% Cinso. Yeah. And in the region, you have to blend. Right. So we'd love to have 100% Grenache, but that wouldn't be part of uh, the region. Yeah, but I when like you, the I try this wine, it's white peach. 
Yes, I, I was going to say I love the white peach. I was going to say Rainier cherry apricot, but you're right because I was going white cherry and and apricot. It's really white peach. That's really tasty. I love that, and it's got a backbone of some minerality. You get that um, the schist soils from where the, the the vines are living. You're getting you're getting that minerality, and it just it's. It's a food wine. It's a. It really is a pleasure wine. It's truly a food wine. And when you said that, because when I think of minerality, there's a certain austerity to a wine, which sort of shows it's lean. It's kind of skeletal. Uh, the acidity and the tannin work together to just to make it um, to make the mouth feel dry and a little tart, which which is always best um, accompanied with a bite of savory food. Whether Can you think of this, like a French fry and garlic aioli with this? Like, heck yeah! You've got the acid and the, the slight oh, yeah. tannin, of course, the, the, the very light fruit. Um, and that's just, it's that's exactly what it goes for. But you can also dress it up because this can go with um, perhaps a, a scallop dish with uh, perhaps a little white peach uh, reduction or something. Hey, folks, I'm speaking with Michelle Wallach. She's the director for Chateau Minuti, which is uh, based out of Provence in the southern part of France. We've got five, another segment coming up. We're going to talk more with Michelle Wallach here on Happy Hour Radio. Some say three is a crowd. We say the more the merrier. Markley, Van Camp, and Robbins. Weekdays, 9 to noon, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, hey, welcome back to our fourth and final quarantine segment. Um, I see the horizon. Uh, good health is near. Um, and I looked in the mirror the other day, and I realized that being quarantined means you you don't exercise. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Uh, that being said, I do end up drinking a lot more, and of course, it's always fun to drink because you know you don't have to wake up early for work, right? Um, and I love drinking rosé. Uh, my wine company was called uh, Coral Wines, and I came out with the Pink Coral Rosé, which was based out of. Morved Sanso, so a little different. Uh, this is Grenache-based um, rosé minty, and uh, we're talking with Michelle Wallach, who is the director for Chateau Minty, based out of New York, and she spent some time in the south of France. Of course, we're speaking with, we chat about the M Minuti, which uh, is, is very fresh, fragrant, grapefruit. Uh, and now we're trying the Rosé Ador, which is the uh, on-domain bottled, is it bottled and produced on-domain? Around Chateau, Almizon. It is. All right. It is. And so, how many how many acres of vines does the family own? Sure, they actually own quite a bit. They're the largest uh, family vineyard owner, and they own 160 hectares in the Côte de Provence. Dang! Wow. They're pretty good. Yeah. And they've been making rosé. I mean, it's really, it's always been the air for rosé. Cool. Always. Eighty-five percent of the wine that they're making at the winery is is rosé. So it's definitely in their in their bones. Fantastic. So the rosé d'or, uh, you said this was 80% Grenache and 20% Sanso? Perfect. Exactly. Look at that. And it's, you know, it's the flagship. It's 
it really is one of the most delicious wines. It's, it's kind of the first wine that I had, and I said, excuse me, are you hiring? Because uh, uh, I would like to exclusively work for you. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, congratulations on that. Uh, you Well played. Um, and this really is, this is a little more delicate, which I think is when you get to the um, the, the prestige cuvées, we're looking for more elegance, um, because there's a lot of very quaffable rosé, and of course, and I love it, and there's nothing wrong with it, but sometimes you're like, okay, I'm looking for that white wine experience or the champagne experience, a little higher acidity, a little more delicate fruit, a little more elegant, uh, and this actually meets it. Uh, what's a website people can find information, and can we buy online? Sure. So the website for Minuti is uh, chateaumenuti.com, and then you can find us also on Instagram at chateaumenuti. And so we're available online um, with some retailers like Wine.com. And, oh, yeah. Um, we are also with Sherry Lehman. But any retailer, you know, we're with a big wholesaler in the state of Washington. So if you have a preferred retailer, you can just ask them um, to basically take in Minuti. And our wholesaler in the state of Washington is Young's Market. Okay. So, they have access to all of the wines that you're tasting. Fantastic. Now, um, you sent me four wines. Of course, we just talked about two, and we'll finish the other two next week. Are four expressions the the sum of uh, Chateau Moniti's uh, production? Yes, correct. So 85% of the production are the four wines, and then they do a little white and a little red at the property. Oh, curious. What's the white? Sure. So the white is actually uh, roll. Roll. Vermentino. Vermentino. Roll. Roll. Oh, your double, your double LR, like it's perfect. Maybe I got a tongue. You took me. <laughs> yep, I'm a drummer too, because I know how roll. I do a drum roll. I played that a long time. Uh, I've actually had uh, Master Sommelier Eric Entrekin here a couple years ago. We came in and talked about roll and Vermentino. Vermentino, of course, known uh, on the coast of uh, I think it's Sicily. Uh, Sardinia, they drew a lot of Vermentino in Italy. That's why it sounds like it's an Italian grape. Uh, that's really fun. Um, Vermentino's coming a long way. So um, it's ChateauMinuti.com, N-I-U-T-Y, and we have the M Minuti, which uh, is about $17.99. What is the Rosé Ador run? Is this 24 bucks? Sure. Actually, this one's higher. This is about $50 uh, suggested retail price. Wow. Lucky me. <laughs> um, it's very elegant. Yeah. And I, I'm curious, do we always drink rosés the year that they're released? I've had some rosé that's had a couple years on it, and it's really, really been delicious. So it really depends where the rosé is coming from. That's I mean, true. typically in a Cote de Provence rosé, um, we want to be drunk fresh. We want <laughs> the acidity. Uh, we want that freshness. Now, on the upper, upper cuvées, like the Rosé War, um, and then our Tetsu Cuvée, which is called 281, those, I would say you can go, you know, anywhere from one to three years. Yeah. But I, I personally like to drink Cote de Provence the year that it's released. Well, it's not hard. I'll tell you that. It still goes down so easy. So delicious. Hey, Michelle, um, what a treat. I really appreciate, uh, I always appreciate drinking great rosé, and these this certainly qualifies. Uh, we're going to talk again next week where we talk about Chateau Minuti Prestige and the Chateau Minuti 281. Michelle Wallach with Chateau Minuti, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, folks. Hey, I uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. Look forward to tasting more rosé next week. And remember, when you're out and about, Soon to happen. Remember, life's always better with a designated driver. Cheers!